Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Really excited about today's episode. (laughs) This will be a little pick-me-up in September. And for those of you that may not have seen this Netflix documentary that had dropped right at the beginning of this pandemic, Crip Camp, Amanda and I and Todd Hazak Lowy from our podcast right before the summer is the one that turned us onto it. Well, we got him back and we're going to discuss it. So thank you, Todd, for coming back onto the pod. Thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you. And thank you for alerting us to what I can't believe we didn't see it like. Well, so we had kind of discussed why. So at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was at home, really excited about being home, just to try to flatten the curve. And then Tiger King came out. And I think that that just like dominated so much of those early pandemic. And this dropped right around that time on the 25th of March. So... I mean, yeah. there was reason was why I think a lot of people, this. yeah. Well, yeah. You, get, you know, a lot of times I think I find, at least with me, is like I get a lot of recommendations of like what to watch on Netflix from friends that watch similar things. Mm-hmm. And I feel like every, you're right, everyone was watching Tiger King. And I don't even know what I was watching at that time because I wasn't really watching it. But I, everyone was just fixated on that, that they weren't making other recommendations. So I think. Right. I mean, I was so excited the first time I was on. For some reason, I was like, oh, they've definitely seen yeah. it. And it's definitely going to like <laughs> speak to them, really. And I was all ready to talk about it. So I know. I'm, well, it spoke to us. And it was it yeah. 100% right up our alley. Although, you know, definitely in my emotional state of being pregnant, was I was crying. It, I mean, I, mean, I was crying a, and I'm not a, pregnant. So. Up, but it, it's so real and raw that I like, I, at some moments, I was like crying because I was like so sad that like, this wasn't even that long ago and that we still deal with some of these issues, but then like crying and joy, like like when, I mean, we'll go into details, but like just how real it is and how powerful movements can be. And we're kind of in that right now too, with the Black Lives Movement matter and and everything else. Yeah. So can I ask you both a question, which is I'm interested in knowing kind of the, moments of recognition you had in the film because I to the extent I understand your work like you're at this other kind of node and obviously at a later date but some of the actual legal changes and like this is stuff that has affected has shaped the landscape in which you practice law am I right about that absolutely 100% I mean starting with section 504 and then with the Americans with Disabilities Act that all laid the foundation for you know us really i mean uh, before we had access and education which we're still fighting for which is probably 99.999% of our work right you know we the this country had to fight for access just in general i mean i think there was a point in the moment when the advocates had said you know i'm tired of being excited that i have access to public restrooms like right that is so powerful that like that I mean, but that was an achievement that they were able to get access to restrooms. And I think like a lot of things, education is, even though it should be, is not considered like 
one of the most important things, right? So access to other things generally comes before access to education, just like changes in, you know, a lot of things in this country happen before education. So like this kind of set the foundation for the civil rights movement that is the disability rights movement before it got to the education system. Like they were like, we need access just to things and places. And then it kind of led to everything else with the IDEA and everything. And before we get too much into it, so obviously we were talking about Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, which was an American documentary on Netflix, as I kind of like alluded to, and Todd we had had on earlier in the year, in the summer, because he's the author of We Are Power, and we had had a great discussion about nonviolent activism and how this kind of pieced together, obviously, was, you know, he was prepared for that previous podcast, and he had mentioned it during that recording. He was like, I thought we were going to talk about Crip Camp. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And so we definitely wanted to have him on because, you know, just so many different themes within the documentary of just the work that you had completed. So the hunger right. strikes, the, the protests, and it's a really great insight because although I knew the history in a sense of like how 504 came about, and obviously it was in the 70s, and that's only, you know, 40 years ago, but then really seeing the impact of things actually changing in the 80s, right? Which wasn't even that long ago. Really put into perspective, just like Amanda said, you know, some of these things we're still fighting for. Interpreters for our deaf and hard of hearing, American Sign Language interpreters for our deaf and hard of hearing kiddos, just the different types of assistive technologies that some of these kiddos would need, not just benefit from and and go further. They really need. Really actually need just on the basic access level, not even, you know, to reach their potential or or anything like that. And I think that's what Amanda was saying in that, you know, it really hit home for us because we can kind of think, okay, we have all this case law and all this stuff. But I mean, even for children that needed catheters to have a registered nurse be able to be on campus so that they can attend school, that case only is about 15 years old. So, you know, children up until that point, you know, and it was a specific group, obviously, that was had to keep at the fight, you know. And I think that that's what was so great about this documentary was showing the, the power of, I think Judy had even said, one of the lead human, activists, yeah. which her last name was like human. It's like H-U-E-M-A-N-N. How... Right? I know. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Just that, the, you know, she says so many wonderful things, but one of the things was, if you don't have respect for yourself, nobody's going to have respect for you. Right. And I think right. that right. that was at the core of this. And Amanda and I, that's what we try to instill in these teams. Like, yes, we're an attorney, we're coming in, but like, this is a collaborative effort. And when you talk about the child, like they're not human, that's a problem. And we still encounter that, right? Yeah, yeah. Still encounter the the misperceptions of people living with disabilities and how we turned our practice from just, you know, individual legal cases to our nonprofit to really change society. And I think, you know, one of the individuals said in there, you know, the law can only do so much. We need society's perceptions to change. And so, like, that's what, like, I love about this documentary so much is that not only does it give you the history and the backstory, but it really demonstrates, like, you see this movement growing from individuals with disabilities. It wasn't teachers and attorneys out there fighting. It was them. It was them. them. And so, like, talk about showing their potential. 
right. and just what they can do. And I mean, that's what we strive for, right? We say they're humans just like us. The minute you start to think they can't, it's a you problem because that's not true. And that causes way more problems down the line. If we can just believe that they, anything that they set their minds to, just like we would be telling our children, right? You can do anything you set your mind to. We're going to have a very different perspective in how we treat them. And so I think, I mean, I would hope that everyone would watch this as much as people watch Tiger King, right? Because I think if you don't live or go to school with people living with disabilities or around them a lot, it's easy to have the stereotypes in your head. So I think people need to see, like, look at what these people did in the 70s. Like, it would be different now. We got social media to get people together. Like, talk about their, you know, demonstrations in, in Washington and San Francisco. Like, they did, right. they had snail mail. Like, they accomplished so much in yeah. such a time, I think. Yeah. So, I totally agree with what you said. And to me, so I've seen the movie twice because I made my family watch it. <laughs> and to me, the most amazing scene of the movie... So obviously I'm interested in nonviolent and nonviolent movements. And the first time I watched it, it was the second half of the movie was obviously really interesting to me because it was like, oh, here's another movement that we see disruption, we see suffering, we Mm -hmm. see agitation. It leads to institutional change. Like it's all the template of all the stories I wrote about in my book. What really kind of blew me away is the first half of the movie. So for people that don't know, what really makes the first half of the movie possible is that there are these kids at this camp in the mid-70s, and they coincidentally, somebody gave them decent filming equipment to do like home movies, basically. But it was good audio and it was good video. And they started this thing at the camp called the People's Video Project, I think it was called. And what's amazing is that that then is this documentation of the camp. Yeah. And then there's this scene. It's a people's video theater. Sorry. But there's this scene that I'd so if you're willing, I'd like to do something with you that like I do with my students, which is like what's called a close reading. Like I just want to look at this scene because I think it totally captures what you're talking about, which is they're sitting around this big table outside, like under some like porch on a big cabin. Yeah. And somebody says, we're going to talk about parents. And then there's like this five to ten minute scene. Yeah. So what do you remember about that scene? Because I've like transcribed it and watched it like ten times and I'm trying to actually write about it. So I don't want to say everything up front. But I'm interested to hear what you remember of that scene. What I remember is it's not the typical angsty teenager response of like, I hate my parents because of this. Or, you know, they keep me, you know, grounded because it was so much deeper. I remember one of them was saying, um, and he's one of the lead guys, he was saying, you know, I know my everybody's kind of going around and being like, you know, my parents, I don't have any freedoms. You know, I don't have this, that, and the other thing. And, and he goes, you know, I just worry because she does a lot of things for me. And if I mm. don't listen to her and I need her to do something for me, you know, she's going to be a bit resentful and I don't want that. And that was so heartbreaking, right? Because they're just stuck between this rock and this hard place where they want to be the typical teen that's just like, I hate my parents. They don't let me do anything. But they actually need them to accomplish, to live, right? They recognize that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to recognize so ha- that so early. Yeah. Like, so they're having this conversation that's like a teenager conversation, which yep. is like, how do you feel about your parents? Mm-hmm. And on the one way, they're just like anybody else. Yep. But then, as you said, there's this kind of the, their experience of adolescence is different. 
very different. But yeah. the moment in the scene of just amazes me is so if you recall, somebody says something, and Stevie Hoffman, mm-hmm. who's the guy with like he essentially has the One Direction haircut, yes, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. 40 years beforehand. <laughs> I assume he has cerebral palsy. I'm not positive. Yeah, I don't think that they ever, yeah. They don't give many of the kids diagnoses. Right. You know, yeah. some kids had polio. and mm-hmm. He bangs his head on the yeah. table and says, I'm really bothered by that statement. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after that, and this is the moment that just astounds me, is Nancy Rosenblum, mm-hmm. who is, I don't know what the appropriate adverb is, like extremely severely disabled. Mm-hmm. Like, how, mm-hmm. what do you say in your field? Yeah, so she is verbal. It's just harder for her to articulate. So she's on the more severe, and I think they had said that she was CP. She was cerebral palsy. Yeah. So she was in a wheelchair, and her speech, she had speech, but it was just a bit delayed. Right. Um, but yeah, she opens up. So when Stevie talks and he says, I'm really bothered by that comment, they put in subtitles for his speech. Yeah. Then she speaks, and one of the able-bodied campers holds the microphone up to her face. Mm-hmm. She talks without subtitles. I yep. timed this for fifty seconds. Yeah, it was. A and while. she is, I assume. Tell me if you had a different experience. We couldn't understand what she was saying. No, no, at all. No. But then there's this amazing shot. And near the end of her speaking, the camera pans open to Stevie, and he is listening to her. Yeah, he understood her. Because they went to school together since they were eight years old, and so he's, like, fluent in Nancy. Yeah. And then he translates for her. And then do you remember what she says? The privacy, right? Was that Yeah, she she wants to be alone, which is so counterintuitive, right? Right. Like, all the work you do is about we need inclusion, accessibility. And the thing she says is, like, I want to be alone. Yep. And it's like, well, how? what does that mean? Right. How can that be? Right. right? Mm-hmm. It means that, like, you only want to be alone with yourself if you think you have some value. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like, 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 quote, unquote, regular people like us, like, sometimes you're alone and you're like, I don't want to be alone. I hate myself right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not enjoying this mm-hmm. experience of being alone with myself mm-hmm. because you're mad at whatever, the, yeah. something you did. You just feel Well, like, I, think, I think that's something that's very inherent in a lot of people living with disabilities. I think they are much better than the rest of us at recognizing our own worth. And like, you always hear people say like, money doesn't buy happiness. You have to be like happy internally before you mm-hmm. can be happy with someone else, right? You have to like love yourself. You have to be comfortable in your own body. You have to be comfortable in your own brain. I feel like so many of us have hard times with that at different points in our lives. And we see this a lot with a lot of our kiddos. Mostly, I would say it's most recognizable with our children living with Down syndrome, where they are happy being themselves. They are happy in their own skin. Um, that doesn't mean that they're not, uh, they don't get upset about things. They don't get frustrated, obviously need help in some cases, but just that, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head of like, she wants to be alone because she is happy with who she is and she wants to be able, she can be happy in her own skin, but that doesn't mean that she may not want, you know, the equal access when she wants it. I think that's something that most people don't realize that internal validation and that, um, I guess, like internal monologue we have with ourselves about how we feel about ourselves. That is something that everybody deals with, not just people who don't have disabilities. 
Yeah. And then what Stevie says is she's talking about the right to privacy, which is one of the basic rights. And it's weird because it's really it's like the mirror negative image of what we think this is all about. We think this is all about I deserve the right of inclusion and the right of accessibility. A person only it only is kind of coherent to want that if you sometimes don't want Right. right. If you sometimes right. like the whole point that we take for granted is able-bodied Able. adults mm-hmm. is like I can go into public into this building and whatever when I want and when I don't want I can be alone. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the measures of a person. Right. right. And what you see in that moment is like the whole thing with her language. When we start to understand her, she becomes a human being for us, and she's really not. I mean, if we're going to be totally honest, at least me, like even you're 40 minutes into this movie about children with disabilities and you're still like, well, Jim's a real person and Judy's a real person and Stevie's even a real person. And then there's Nancy who like, I don't know really what she is. Like, I don't know how I would interact with her. She just seems to be this kind of biology, right? Right. Like keep the biology, like don't kill her. But like, there's no, I don't, I can't access her humanity. Mm-hmm. But that's the, you can't access her. Right. No, no. It's a you yeah. thing, right? And we do right. that all the time. I can't understand her, so therefore... She's less. Right. But it's like, that shouldn't be our total of deciding people's work, how yeah. we feel or how right. we view them. It's more than that. Right. And it's also like, if you try a little harder, it's there. And that's why, like, to me, like, Stevie is the hero of that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he brings her back for everyone. Right. Right. Like after the counselor takes the mic away, he said, did anybody get Get part of that? Mm -hmm. And then Stevie translates it. And like without him, she's stuck where she was before. Yeah. Right. And it's just to me, it's like such a and they go right from that to the logic of we knew we had value and we knew we had to demand that other people see it in us. Right. And I think that was so unique about the premise of, look, this camp was run by a bunch of hippies and, you know, it kind of started out like a real camp and then it just kind of began, you know, the essence of the 60s, I suppose, or how we think the 60s and the 70s were of this kind of social experimentation. Because that's essentially how the Camp Jeanette kind of got there. And if it wasn't just these people were so enlightened and they were like, they, they have value. I think it literally was a social experiment in having these types of adults and young kiddos with these different types of disabilities come to this camp and if you want to play baseball then you gotta you either hit it to make it to base and we'll help you get to base or you're out you know and within that conversation with the parents it was just like do your parents treat you the same way as your siblings right and I think Judy's like oh you know my two older brothers can do anything and then it was like oh well that's because they're guys and that's kind of when Stevie goes I don't really like that you know and it was just the different levels of the civil rights movement really showed through this movie this documentary which was fascinating because we like to label things and we like to compartmentalize things so it's just like here's this camp just for kids with disabilities here's a camp for everybody else that's doing this here is black lives matter movement here is pro-life movements and here are you know pro-body choice like and it's all of it together is civil rights a lot of people who think about the different movements and like when they think about the disability rights movement, they when they think about like what laws were passed, right, because that's the progress that happened that is tangible. They think about, oh, well, they got equal access, which mm-hmm. the equal part of that, we could talk, we could have a whole other Amanda and I about. wouldn't have jobs if that was completely true. 
Right. But like a lot of people think about it as just like you were saying, they were fighting for access to be able to go to the bathroom, get in those buildings. But what I love about this documentary is it showcases that it was much more about that. And it continues to be much more about that. But I think what we forget is you have to start somewhere. Because, like, I think a lot of people who aren't eating, living, breathing this movement like we do think, oh, well, the work is done because those laws were passed. And it's like, well, they got what they wanted. Well, but that wasn't really what they wanted. But they had to start somewhere. You have, you can't just expect society to change. Yeah, laws can help society change. But I definitely think a powerful moment towards the end when they were, a group of people were, were getting their way up those stairs Mm-hmm. And you see them dragging their wheelchairs. Yeah. That kid that was just like scooting his body up stair by stair. Like, I think that image is, is very powerful and looking at what these individuals <laughs> have had to go through just to be able to get to using the bathroom mm-hmm. or getting up those stairs. But that is just scratch the surface of what mm-hmm. they deserve, right? Or what they're fighting for. Right. Well, so one thing is that, I mean, you definitely see, and this is certainly the case in most to all of the movements I write about in my book, is that, you know, I structure them so that there's these victories, right? Especially near the end. But if you pull back a little bit, right, this, the chapter on civil rights for African-Americans certainly isn't suggesting that, like, racism was over that right. day. Or the case of women getting the vote, right. that, like, sexism isn't over. And if you look at the farm workers movement, like, that's just an endless series of fights over working conditions. And so it makes sense that this story, in a sense, tells the beginning and middle of this. Right. It doesn't really tell the end of it. It's an ongoing thing. And I think the dynamics and the reason for that in each movement and in each case is its own. There's a different dynamic at work, right? Like in Black Lives Matter right now, we're seeing that like racism is really stubborn in this society and really interwoven with a lot of its institutions. And I guess you could say something in general that ableism is also interwoven into our society. Yeah. Um, I don't think you want to flatten the differences completely, but... But those dynamics are there, right? Mm-hmm. It's these people that are like, recognize my humanity. Absolutely. Force you to recognize my humanity. Right. And that's the thing of like, all it does always come down to like, ultimately, these people who have been weakened by this or that oppression and marginalization ultimately like have to claim power to make that change, right? And I think that's what you mean by that scene where they're dragging themselves up the stairs. It's a performance right. yeah. of their ability. Right? right. Yeah. It's only meaningful symbolically. Like it's Absolutely, not. Absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing technically about what they're doing that really makes any sense in terms of like what they're asking for. But it's like right. I'm going to show you. Right. I will make you look at me. I will disrupt your. I will be a part of the physical scenery of the capital. I will make you feel uncomfortable because a lot of people, I'm sure, that were out there that day felt uncomfortable watching that. Yeah. Same as. I hear all the time people who go to the grocery store and have someone who has a disability doing their bagging their groceries and how many people I see where the person will say hello and some people will turn their heads. They don't, it makes them uncomfortable, but you need to be uncomfortable because we don't deal with this on a regular basis the way that some of these people do. And that humanity 
I think it's interesting to see, like, we know that we've seen it in the past with movements of people coming together, like, from other demographics, like, helping other movements. And you saw it with the Black Panthers giving food to them in the movement, in the movie. I think we're seeing that a lot more now, just because with social media, we you see a lot of, I think I've seen, like, a lot of memes and a lot of just different pictures and infographs online of, like, People saying, you know, it's the immigrants standing with Black Lives Matter the same way that, you know, African Americans stood by to fight ICE not too long ago. Right. That all of these movements and why we call them all civil rights movements is because it is like it's all intertwined. They have different problems and there's different solutions and but they're all fighting for the same thing, that humanity absolutely true and it's also i mean in a way like you can think about so much of the marginalization or oppression of a group is basically like i don't want to have to see you right and so you also look at like a movement like act up with the aids movement it was Mm -hmm. like their thing was silence equals death it was like i'm not going to disappear right i know you want me to disappear i'm not going to disappear and what is on some level for some people like the bizarre absurdity of the phrase black lives matter is like it doesn't go without saying you don't see me right right you do not see me. you do not think i matter right and that's what they all have in common is like we're not it's convenient for you if we go away. Absolutely. And we're not going to go away. You yeah. have to deal with us. You have to right. make space for me. What was really interesting is when they go to Califano's house. And it's like a group of the protesters that had left San Francisco and they had to sit in. And it's like, you know, they're like, we got to put a face to this so that they can really like hear us. And the police show up and they see a bunch of people in wheelchairs. And the guy goes, you know, they don't want to F with us because we're in wheelchairs. But it was really, I'm sure, just for the police officer, they're, you know, in their minds, they're like, well, these are weak people. I'm not going to arrest them. So in a way that, you know, was something that they do not want to be seen as, right? But it worked in their benefit because they were so confused and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted people to question, why are we doing this? Why are we here? We are worthy of your time and we are worthy of being more than just you wanting us dead. Because that's what one of them had said. She felt like every day people wanted her dead. And I think even one of the news clips that they had was like, you know, in the animal kingdom, you know, those animals that are disabled or weak, they get killed off. And it's just like, that's how they felt, you know, and I'm sure that there's still people that feel that way. And but to me, you know, that was what was truly it was just like, you don't know what to do with me. And that's fine. Just listen to me. And that's eventually what kind of like turned it. But that was really interesting because it, the police were just so confused right like they were just like what yeah. do we arrest them right because if it was anybody else i'm sure they would have arrested them on the spot I'm sure. right if it was yeah. a group of black people oh absolutely yeah it would have been a very different situation yeah. especially back then yeah right it was very but it's amazing. interesting because they it leads to the way it plays out is that There's also that super, one of the climactic moments in the movie is when Judy's talking to that government official and she says, I wish you'd stop nodding your head at me and I know you're not listening, right? And so because they're less threatening, right, right, they kind of initially that works to their advantage because it seems like the conflict's less of a conflict. Yes. So they come and they talk to them, but she knows they're not really listening. Right, right. And that's that moment when she says like, it's not okay that you're just humoring me. 
Exactly. Right. Like this is not, and that's why it's so important that the story involves like this goes on for a long time. They have to yeah. do a lot of things. They have to do this over and over again. Right. Because people don't want to change the status quo. No. And they'll pretend they are for a while before they do, or they'll a little bit do it and assume that that's enough. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I mean, we're seeing that right now. Like, there's the people that are like. Things are so much better than they used to be for African Americans, and they're like, "Well, maybe, yeah. uh, maybe not." Yeah. But even if yes, like that's inadequate. Right. It's got to be way better than a little better. Right. Yeah. A little right. better. So the best it is. It's a little better. Right. Right. So, and this is the same thing. Like, it's not just about ramps. It's right. It's not just about bathrooms. Like, this is about more than that. Yeah. No, I mean, it was so well done. It was, I always like a good soundtrack. And they just, you know, had really great music from the time and moving forward. And, and I think it was not only a compelling story, but just to start it with the camp, right? And it's just this group of kids. And yeah, that sense of community. is so yeah. different. It's not yeah. just them as adults talking about what their experiences were when they were teenagers. It, like, And you see the realness of their lives. I mean, we talked about like when they were talking about the parents, how there was a, a part to the conversations that they did seem different from other teens because they had to think about things that other teens didn't have to. But then there was the realness of you know, them engaging in sexual acts with each other and, you know, them getting crabs. And, like, that is a very real thing, like, in many, like, teenagers and, you know, 20-somethings going to camp. You better believe, I'm sure, you know, there's lots of activity going on. I mean, that's just a very big topic for teenagers and and young adults. So it was very real to hear them just talking about it like it was no big deal. It was part of their Well, at first when it started, I thought, okay... It's going to focus on those with physical disabilities because this is like my immediate thoughts as I was seeing the first couple of scenes. And I said, okay, I guess that's easy. You know, you kind of start in the shallow end. And I said, they're probably not going to have anybody with intellectual disabilities. And then as it progressed, it just, it widened the scope, which I appreciated. And they did say there's a hierarchy, but I think what was also compelling in like Nancy's story is that she may be difficult to understand because her speech isn't up to, you know, what we would, you know, the the fast pace in which I'm talking, but she can speak, but she ended up going to college. She ended up getting a master's. She ended up being a very vocal, you know, protest. And it's just, if you're never going to scratch the surface and get behind, you know, her delayed speech, you would never know any of that about her. And that happens with so many of our kiddos. Well, maybe he's not talking and he's three years old because he doesn't have anything to say. Like, you know, but we see that. You're going to listen. Right. We And we see that with speech and language pathologists, you know, that say, well, they're nonverbal, so I'm not going to give speech and language. And you saying that this child is nonverbal, even though she communicates with her parents, this is a client of mine, you know, she grabs a hand, she stares, she is communicating. But just right, because it's right. not your form of verbal language, it's still speech and language. And the language component you can still work on. So instead of seeing her as subhuman, because if you can't communicate, you're not human. You know, you're or, as good as a virus that can't but communicate. You're communicating very slow right. and unintelligible. Right. And like that, we see a lot. And it's like yeah. how we vocalize and communicate has no indication of what our intellectual capabilities are and what our potential. I mean, that's the first way that most people, when you meet someone, you're communicating with them, right? I mean, you're going to see them first, but then secondary, you're communicating with them and 
the perception of if I can't communicate with you, then you are less than in terms of what you and I can do. But that's not true. I mean, I have a child, a student that's now in high school that I, he was on my soccer team when I coached soccer and he was been my client for a while and he has cerebral palsy. And for so long, his communication was limited. But his dad, I mean, I'd see it on the soccer field, have so much conversations with them. And like, I had to learn some of his signs because they weren't traditional ASL at first. It was, they had almost like their own language. Dad was kind of like the translator. The minute he went to high school and started learning ASL, it's amazing how much more that not like he wasn't able to communicate before because he was able to communicate it was just we had to approach how we communicated differently right you know rather than expecting him to communicate differently but he learned ASL and his communication with his peers just I mean it changed like night and day right but that didn't mean that all of a sudden he learned a lot didn't mean all of a sudden he knew a lot and had a lot intellectual, but like he always had those capabilities. It was just, he communicated in a different way. Right. And isn't part of it though also, I mean, and this is most clear with young people, but it wouldn't seem to be limited to them that a lot of what this is about is like, they're not finished products. Like, especially the children, right? Like, that's most obvious with children. But I assume people would look at certain children with disabilities and be like, they've reached the limit of what they right. can do in this way or that way. And it's like, no, no, no. If you create a different structure, give them different tools, meet them halfway, provide resources, blah, 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 like, they're going to be able to grow meaningfully. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe not exactly like everybody else. Right. But that they are going to be able to do all these things. And it seems like that's kind of, we all depend on other people kind of like, let me be with you. Right. Or let me right. grow. Let me, being. yeah, let me learn. We never stop learning. We never stop growing. So why is it that with a person with a disability, we assume that they're done? I mean, like, it's a label. Like I said, we like to label things. So when you label a child severely autistic, you know, you're thinking he's never going to be able to effectively communicate. And that's just not the case. You may not have tried all these other different avenues of communication or anything like that. And I think that is, you know, sometimes where we're at a disservice and and sometimes when parents are just like, I know my kid can do more. And sometimes the solution is pull them, put them in a private school that, you know, is with general education kids. And if they can work with you, you know, on different aspects of supporting him, sometimes we find that the child just absolutely flourishes. And it's difficult because we want to keep our kids in public school, of course, like that's the best avenue for them. A lot of the federal, you know, obviously it's federally funded special education and at the state and local level as well. But we oftentimes see administrators or districts kind of just stuck and it's the same thing over and over. That's what is, you know, somewhat interesting about the pandemic and, and forcing people into this digital realm and trying to think outside the box. Yes, you still have the districts that are refusing to, you know, get on the bandwagon and figure this out, but you had some districts in different states doing some really innovative things that right. don't just work for one particular neurotypical kiddo. You know, it, it works for a lot of different kids. And I think that is what was nice about how the documentary kind of 
just shaped everything, right? It's that sense of community at that local level. That's why, you know, voting for who's on the school board is important, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because it really dictates yeah. so much. You don't think about it. You think, you know, we're all about like, you know, the presidential campaigns and this and other thing, but it really starts at a local level. And you saw that in San Francisco, the mayor, like, was on their side, you know, right. <laughs> as they were doing different. the pro. Yeah. Wait, and- can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Like when you are in conflict with a district that's dragging their feet, mm-hmm. is it because of money or effort or both? Uh-huh. Is it uh, scarce resources? Like how do they, what's the reason? I mean, the I'd reason cannot be not- money. It just, it cannot be like, they cannot say that, but sorry, I mean, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's not supposed to be about money. It's really not. They're going to say it's about money sometimes, or everyone thinks it's about money. It's about how they allocate that money. Do they want to spend money on this support? So like, for instance, if we're trying to get a better reading intervention program, because whatever program is going on in the K through third grade system isn't working, because 30% of these kids are not learning to read, we know that's not working. So we say, we want to get a different program in. That's curriculum, they have to buy that. Well, they think, well, we already have curriculum, why would we buy new? Because if we don't spend it on that, we can spend it on other things which end up being salary of administrators, not teachers, paying for renovations that don't necessarily need to happen in the district, like high school that already has pretty decent facilities, getting a new football field. The money gets so intertwined. You know, so often than not, it's a desire to keep things the status quo. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that we ask for is about changing the way that we're doing things. And everyone just likes to do things the way they've all, like we always hear this, like we've always done it that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So what? So what if we've always done it that way? Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's good. But that's but always the that's always the it. answer, right? Even with five hundred four, it'd just be too expensive. And if I give this reading program to you, then I'm gonna have to give it to everybody else. And it's like, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> this is right, not just right. going to. No, be but that's gonna help you. So because tailored. Then yeah. These kids are gonna learn to read. Yeah. And like, you know, there's so many most different. Of the time we fight for would help almost all the kids in the classroom. Exactly. Not just. Right. There's so not many to different mention ways. that when you increase the sort of performance and abilities of the lowest achieving students that everybody benefits from that absolutely well just even ramps and just all these like structural barricades that once existed they don't just help because you know one of the congressmen was like oh it's not that many people that it would help it would help people that are older that can't necessarily get up everywhere it would probably help a lot of children it would probably help a lot of able-bodied people that otherwise you know may encounter problems and we had and i just i can't think of her name off the top of my head but we had who was that professor that we had had that taught about ableism and the different i know she was amazing and she was just talking about like look you know a lot of times people they don't understand and this was one of the activists in the film you know for 20 years she had lived a certain life then she got you know hit by a truck and that run ran her off the road and then she was in a wheelchair for the rest of her life and she never identified herself as somebody that was part of this fight until you know she kind of became involved and you know to us that's what we try to push for in our nonprofit is not just the acceptance i think for the most part people have begrudgingly accepted kiddos with different types of disabilities and then they feel sorry for them right that next component of understanding is really what judy was was pushing for and i don't we're not there right i mean there's some of us that understand that take the time and it's 
further than just being sympathetic or even empathetic, but really turning that into action. And that's right. what's the driving the force. Of, of not understanding is the all lives matter. Right. right. But yeah. well, what you said is really important, and it goes back to the two halves of the movie. Like it starts with a change in an attitude. Right. And that's relevant both to the like party in question and everybody else. So right, the the service of the movie is that for people on Netflix, it's like, do you, hey, come over here and watch your, like, learn that these people have humanity. And right. then watch as they do something about it. And you have to do something about it, too, in some way, right? Like, they can agitate, but ultimately, other people are the ones that are going to either, like, support them or um, actually implement changes and keep pushing this, right? I mean, it goes back to that kind of cliched story of, like, or question of, like, why do you need to tell these stories? Yeah. Like, why you need to tell these stories? Right. Well, people don't live in other people's experiences. They only live in their own. And far too often, we're so focused on our own experiences that we don't think about. And it's people that blatantly don't want to think about other people that cause a problem. I mean, I was reading one of the local school districts here just came out with like somewhat of a plan for the fall for opening up schools and they're requiring masks for both teachers and parents. And I saw a lot of people commenting about like, it's just ridiculous for kids to have to be wearing masks. Like most kids don't get it or if they get COVID, it's not that bad. And everyone's focus was on the kids. And then several people started popping up like, do you not realize that it's the kids aren't the only ones that are on these on these campuses? Sure. Yeah, you yeah. have the teachers, you have the librarians, you have the janitors, you have the administrators, you have all these other people. So while you're sitting there thinking about your kid only, mm-hmm. right. you're not thinking about all these other people who are affected. Mm-hmm. And that's a big problem and why mm-hmm. we have so many people. I mean, the, the whole mask thing is, is part of that, right? Yeah. I don't think I'm going to get sick, so I'm not going to wear this mask. You, in reality, you're wearing the mask to help other people. If you're going into a doctor's office, that doctor is seeing so many people that if everyone didn't wear a mask, they're not going to be protected. But if everyone did, it's different. So it's the concept of having not just empathy about other people, but trying to put yourself in their shoes and act in a way that demonstrates that it's more about every it's about other people besides just yourself. Well, it's about the collective. Right. I mean, yeah. that's the great thing about it is that it's precisely because you're doing it to protect yourself and to protect others, and you don't know which. Right. right. Like the whole right. crazy thing that like right. so many people are asymptomatic and that there's this long incubation period. Like you just don't you know. Just you just don't know. Ever, right. Really. Yeah. I mean, this is a big thing. I teach at a college. You know, I teach a college, and this is a whole. It's going on all over the country. The faculty are like, no way. Rightly um, so. I mean, you know, and I think you know the reason we tell these stories is because we would like to think that everybody. I think now more so than in the seventies, somebody knows somebody with some type of disability, and I think that that's where I was going. I now I remember where I was going. Whereas you know, you may have a disability once in your life, you know, that could be a broken arm, a broken leg, you know, that could just be when you're older and you get Alzheimer's. Like her idea was, you know, it's not about just knowing somebody like you could, that could happen in your life. Maybe you change once it happens to you. But the point of telling these stories is to put a face to the problem, right? And that's in Judy, that's in Jim, that's in, you know, Nancy and all these different people. And I think that, and just this documentary does it right within the title, Crip Camp. 
first you're just like, I don't think we're supposed to say cripple. Are we supposed to say handicap? Wait a second, you know? And it does that for a reason, just in its title, which I think is brilliant. And it's such a thrilling way to, and it's just really free spirited. And I think that was the spirit of the camp. And I think that that's why it's called that. And I think that that's why they start with it. So that these collective stories, cause then you're invested. You're just like, yeah, they're just a bunch of kids, da da da. And it didn't just happen one day, obviously. It was over the span of really all of their Maybe. lifetimes, right? And they're still here with us. And I think that that is the reason why these stories are being told is because a lot of us can just stay in our little bubble and this forces them out of it. And just kind of taught how you had said at the beginning of this, you know, the Tiger King is that junk food, but Crip Camp is really those vitamins that are really good for you. And they don't taste bad. They're like the Flintstone vitamins. Like, just take <laughs> yeah. it in and really, I mean, I, we've talked it up, so I hope everybody goes and watches it. I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, an hour yeah, has already I gone by. Get off soon. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, no, but this was a real pleasure. I'm super, it was really interesting to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, I hope people go see it. Yeah. And yeah, you know. Yeah. No, it was really it's great. It's really no excuse right now because everyone's spending a lot more time at home. And yeah. Sure. And it's good. Netflix and Disney Plus are getting that money. I know. They really are. Yeah. I mean, they do a great job. I think it's in like an hour and 45 minutes. It comes from the production company of Barack and Michelle Obama. And like I said, great soundtrack that always gets me. But thank you a million times over for letting us have this opportunity to watch it and then to talk to you about it because we do this amongst ourselves. Uh, <laughs> and it's nice to have somebody outside of being an advocate in that sense to have this discussion with. So thank you, Todd. You're very welcome. It's good to have dialogue with people about this stuff. So Absolutely. keep doing your work. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Yeah, we okay. can't wait to read about Take it. Take care. And yeah, Amanda, well. good health to you. Thank down you. Down the home stretch. <laughs> I hope it's as wonderful and uneventful in all the bad ways and lovely right. in the good ways. Me but. too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, be well, everybody. Be it's great well. to see you again. Thanks. Bye, Tom. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you later. Bye. Bye.